You're listening to the King's Church DC podcast. King's Church is located in the heart of Washington DC and exists to make Jesus known in our city through enduring presence that brings personal conversion, purposeful living, and community reconciliation. We hope you enjoy the following sermon. Good morning, everyone. My name is Wesley. I'm one of the uh, pastors here at King's Church. And today we begin a new series uh, in the book of Genesis, which is really, as I just said in our prayer, all about beginnings. Now, beginnings and origins matter in our lives. Uh, There's a reason why there are 12 million people who have signed up through 23andMe to do DNA testing. Anyone in the house has done that before? All right, so a few of you are part of the 12 million. Uh, So is my wife. Back in 2015, we decided to sign up to get more information kind of about her origins, her beginnings, a little bit more about where she came from. Those of you who who know Abby, she was adopted. And so uh, during adoption processes, you don't really get to know a lot about your family history. And so she decided, well, I'll take the DNA test to learn a little bit more about where I came from. Well, we got more than we bargained for because not only did we find information about uh, where she came from, we also found out that she had five other half siblings in this world. Uh, We can make a Hallmark movie out of this. I don't know why we didn't think about this, but uh, it's it's amazing, right? We do this often. We want to know about our past. Why would we pay money? Why would we long for the things that are information about our past? Well, because our beginnings, our origins, they matter. Because where we come from shapes who we are and where we're headed. But it's not just about DNA testing. You can look at the field of psychology and see this. That psychologist would say, psychologically, what happens at you early on in childhood can have a profound impact on your adulthood. Historians do this. Historians, they they help us understand what has unfolded, the founding of institutions and nations and events that now shape the trajectory of where we are today. But it's not just about those individual origins that we, that we try to understand, our beginnings. But when we look out into the grand masterpiece of creation, we begin to wonder, how did this all begin? Not just us individually, but how did the masterpiece of this creation, how did it come into being? When you think about a a great piece of artwork, maybe think of Van Gogh's Starry Night, you look at it and you gaze at it and you try to think, you try to capture, how can I appreciate this art for what it is? How can I understand what this art is trying to communicate? And the same is true of beginnings. When we think about the beginning of this world, we look at the, the, the nature around us, we look at creation, and we're belittled by the fact that it's so grand, it's so big, and we think, how can we understand and appreciate it for what it is? And just like a a piece of painting like Van Gogh's art, you don't go into the art, uh, well, at least you're not supposed to, go into an art exhibit and go up and touch the painting, right? What happens if you touch the painting with your finger? Well, you can can actually create something that can deteriorate the painting. It can can actually affect the painting. And so you want to look at a painting, a piece of artwork, and you would say, how can I actually appreciate this beauty for what it is? Because you know what art does? Art is an expression. It's a physical, it's a tangible expression of the inner life of the artist, It's saying something about the one who has designed it. And so we think about our beginnings. We're not just thinking about our own origin stories. We're looking at the grand masterpiece of creation. We're saying it is telling something about the artist behind it. It's telling us something about the master creator behind it. Isaiah says it is telling us that the whole earth is filled with his glory. 
Psalm 19 says, the heavens declare the glory of God. In essence, when we think about our beginnings, we don't just think individualistically, we think about the, the masterpiece of creation, and we say it's, it's a painting from the same brush of the master creator, and it's telling us something about who he is. And so as we jump right into the beginning of Genesis today, what we're going to do is we're going to travel back all the way to the beginning. A beginning that neither a DNA test nor a psychologist nor a historian can really take us. We're going to go back to the beginning as life was created by God. A masterpiece that no other artist could ever render but God alone. And what this is going to teach us today, and really our main idea flowing from these very first few verses we're going to look at today from Genesis chapter 1 is this, that Everything, everything was created by God and for God. Everything was created by God and for God. Now, before we dive into this text, uh, I want to just kind of introduce this, this study for us, this book of Genesis to us, because we are in a new series today. And it's a series, like I said, that's all about beginnings. The, the word Genesis literally means origin. It literally means beginning. It is the first book of the Bible. And what we're going to study is the first 11 chapters of Genesis. If you think about Genesis as a book, it's really divided into two main chapters. You have chapter 1, which is the first 11 chapters of the book, which is telling us the story of God. It's telling us the story of the world, how it came to be, and, and the story of humanity. And then you get past chapter 11, you get from 12 to 50, you see the second half of the book, which is telling us the story of God's people through Abraham. And we're going to focus on these origins, these beginnings of the story of God and, and the story of our beginnings and the beginning of this world. Now, as we get into Genesis chapter 1, we're immediately confronted with some challenges. I know many of you are thinking about this already. The first challenge is from a modern society, from a secular society, there's many people who open up the Bible, and once they get to Genesis chapter 1-1, they immediately conclude that this book is irrelevant and it's implausible. Before they go any further, they say that because of theories like the Big Bang Theory explains the existence of the beginning. And then billions of years of mutation and natural selection explain the variety of life that we now see today. And the logical conclusion of that is because of that, there's really no purpose to it. In other words, if we, if we believe in a scientific explanation of the beginning of the world without the God who created science, without the God who created the, the natural laws that we abide by, then we're left with unanswered questions when it comes to the whys behind our existence, our beginning. And there's a lot of philosophers who would agree with you. A lot of philosophers who would hold to this, who, who know that the logical conclusion is that there's no answer to those why questions. Frederick Nietzsche said it this way, one who believed that uh, apart from God, evolution is the, the explanation for the organic history. He says, if God is no longer necessary to account for either the existence of the universe or the emergence of our species from prehistoric animals, then that will lead to the collapse of all traditional values because both objective meaning and spiritual purpose have vanished from reality. He understands the logical conclusion of his own beliefs. And one of his contemporaries, Jean-Paul Sartre, says the same thing. He says, once you dispense with God, the good news is you can do whatever you want, guilt-free, no dread of retribution. If you get away with it on earth, you get away with it forever. The bad news is when you dispense with God, you lose all intellectual basis for declaring anything to be inherently right or wrong. So even these guys understand the logical conclusion of their beliefs. It, it begs to answer the question, well, how can we make sense of this existence in life? What was before it? 
How can we answer these deep questions? And then you have to factor in, well, how can we look at the beauty and the intricacy of this design of this world that doesn't just seem like it could be explained by some random accident? And then you have to think even deeper, well, what about the longings of our hearts? What about the, 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 the ingrained awareness within us that things are beyond us, that there has to be meaning in this life? Where does that come from? And then you have to deal with, well, what, what is the basis for right and wrong? How do we understand that in this world? You see, if we come to Genesis chapter 1 and we try to understand our beginning, the beginning of this world, without seeing God at the center of our beginning, then we're left with unanswered questions. So some of us may not be struggling with that this morning, though. Some of us might come to Genesis chapter 1, and what we want to do is immediately jump into the question of how, right? How did it all begin? How did it all happen? How long did it take? Did it happen with evolution or not? And I want to just remind us this morning as we read through this that we have to be careful about the questions we ask about Genesis chapter 1. Because Genesis chapter 1 is designed primarily not to answer all the details of how, but primarily answer the details of why. Who is the creator and why does it matter for his creation? And so that's essentially what we're going to do today. As we jump into Genesis chapter 1, which is the first of the first five books of the Bible we commonly refer to as the Pentateuch, and we see that Genesis, uh, according to both Jesus and the other witnesses in Scripture, was written by a guy named Moses. And Moses, as we said at the beginning of this year, was called by God to lead the Israelites out of Egypt, the Exodus, out of Egypt, and they end up in the wilderness. And it's in the wilderness on a mountain that God speaks his word to Moses and says, write it down. And so when we enter into Genesis chapter 1, what we're reading and what we're intended to read is history. It is history. But it is history aimed at being the word of God that is forming the people of God. In other words, when we read Genesis chapter 1, we're reading history, but not perhaps how a modern historian would write. Because a modern historian would write with, with a, an emphasis on the minute details of dates and times. We're reading Genesis, and Genesis is a theological history. It is telling us what actually happened, but it's also telling us something deeper. It's telling us the why and the who that's behind what actually happened. And so when we read Genesis chapter 1, we have to be careful not to come at it first with the question of how did God create the world, but that God created the world. And why does this matter for us? And so that's precisely what we're going to focus on this morning. We're going to approach Genesis with humility and an eye towards Ecclesiastes chapter 3, which we studied recently. And even Solomon would write, God has made everything beautiful in his time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. And so if you came in expecting to fully understand how the world began uh, through the study of Genesis chapter 1, I'm sorry, uh, we're not going to be able to cover all that, right? Expect not to fully understand. But in Genesis chapter 1, what we'll see is bursting from these pages are crystal clear truths about who created this world and why it matters for us. And so our outline today for these first three verses is simply going to be three questions we're going to ask. Number one, who created this world? Number two, how do we live in this world? And number three, what is the hope for this world? Let's go ahead and dive into our first question. Who created this world? Genesis chapter one, the very first words. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. 
The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. The Bible opens here with a crystal clear explanation of the very beginning. That the cosmos, the heavens, the earth are a result of the effortless work of an all-powerful creator. God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, the first thing this really teaches us about God is his power being put on display that God is creating from nothing. God is creating from nothing. This is actually very unique when you look at ancient uh, accounts of, of different creation narratives and creation stories from, from ancient uh, cultures or even kind of polytheistic cultures. The, all those other uh, records that we see of kind of origin stories of creation, they all have one thing in common. None of them were created out of nothing, ever. For an example, one origin story says that humans were made out of the blood of a slain god. Another one says the heavens were created from a slaughtered sea monster. I find that hard to believe, just be honest, right? They're all derivative. They're all an afterthought. Those, those creation uh, myths are even sometimes an accident. What you never have is what we see in Genesis chapter 1, that God creates out of nothing, which means this for us today. He is God alone. He has no equal. He has no rival. The Bible says in the beginning there was God. There is everything that this one God has made, and there is nothing else. He is God alone, and his power is unlike any other being. He says it with his word, and boom, galaxies, stars, skies, beauty come into this world. What that means for us this morning, if we're trying to seek the origins of who we are, if we take a DNA test through 23andMe and it doesn't tell us that our origin begins with God, then it's false. If we want to understand who we are, and we'll study this even more as we study through Genesis chapter 1, we have to start with God. In the beginning, there was God. He is the only one who created the world out of nothing. The second thing we see, though, is that God creates from love. He creates from love. Creation is a product of his love. The world is not in existence by virtue of some random accident. It is being birthed out of this deep union, out of a deep love that existed prior to anything that ever came into being. Here we see in the beginning, again, God created, verse 1. And in there, we begin to see something very profound. The Trinity at work. The Father, the Son, and Holy Spirit. One God eternally existing in three now, I know it's hard to understand because the Trinity is both mind imploding and exploding at times. But what this means for us here, I'm going to try my best to break this down for us. What this means for us is that at the very beginning, in the very essence of God, from the beginning, he exists in community. He exists in perfect relationship he exists in perfect love, perfect coexistence, three persons, yet completely one God. And in verse one, we see God the Father. He's creating the heavens and the earth. And in verse two, we see the Spirit of God hovering over the waters. And then we get to verse three, and God speaks his word. And the gospel of John chapter one interprets that for us. John one, verse one. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him 
was not anything made that was made. And then in verse 14, he gives us even more clarity to who this word is. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Who is the word? The word is the one who became flesh and dwelt among us, Jesus. From the very beginning, we see the father, the son, and the Holy Spirit. Before the beginning, loving one another. And out of that love, comes matter and the cosmos as we know it. Uh, one of the great church fathers, St. Augustine, really struggled even with understanding the Trinity. Uh, the Trinity really does overload our circuits, as he would say. But he also says this, that unless you have a triune God, love is not ultimate reality. Unless you have a triune God, love came later. But in creation, we have this. There is community. They knew and loved one another from all eternity. And his descriptor is this, that there's a circle of love, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They were delighting in each other's beings. They were praising each other's glories. They were enjoying each other's beauty. They were pouring love into one another. And one day they said, let's expand the circle. Let's expand the community. Let's create beings who can become part of the circle. Perhaps one of the best illustrations that help us understand this love pouring out in creation is when we ex receive and experience new birth in this world, which, praise God, we've succeeded in this, ha this church recently, Right? We've seen new babies. And when a new baby is born, the father and the mother, what do they do? They gush over that child with joy, right? I don't cry often, but there's a few times where I've cried just bursting tears of joy. And, and they were around the, the birth of our daughters. And, and there's moments I can look back in those births, and I can just tell you, I was a, a blubbering mess. Like a blubbering mess of a girl dad just weeping over them. I can remember in those early moments uh, of just hovering over their cribs and thinking, Abby, like, this creature is us. Like, is that not amazing? Before that, that child came into being, love proceeded. And in verse 2 here, what do we see? We see the Spirit of God is hovering over the waters. And that word hovering is used to describe in other contexts a mother hovering over her child. Over the face of the earth was love bursting forth. If you want to know what it means when John tells us, for God so loved the world, look at creation. And you get a picture of his perfect love. And this is important because what it means is that God didn't create the world out of some insufficiency in his being. He wasn't needy for our love. He existed in perfect love. He wasn't lonely without his creation. But instead, creation came into being as a fountain, an overflowing love from his being so that we could now participate and know his love. These opening verses teach us one more thing about God and how he creates. He doesn't create out of his power, out of nothing, or out of his love. He creates with order and purpose. There's intent, there's design behind his creation. It's not just a product of deep love or mighty power, but it's ordered and it's, it has a purpose for our flourishing, for our good and for his glory. If you look at the creation passage, we're going to go through every single verse in Genesis chapter 1, but if you look at it, you see some beautiful symmetry. You see beautiful uh, organization behind it. And in fact, if you look at it, you can, you can actually see it almost in two different symmetry uh, sections, uh, day one through three, and then four through six. And in this, you see that God is, is saying something about the order and design of the world. 
In the first three days, he's really creating the habitats that we need to survive in this world. And then in the last three days, he's then putting inhabitants in those habitats. You look at day one, he creates light. Day four, what does he do? In the environment of light, he creates the sun, the moon, and the stars. Day two, he creates the sky and the sea. What does he do in day four? He creates birds to populate the sky and fish and sea creatures to populate the sea. And then in day three, he creates dry land and plants, the perfect inhabitation for land animals and ultimately the crown of his creation, humanity. What he's teaching us here is that he has a design and intent to create the universe in a way for our good and our flourishing. He has created it with a purpose for our good and our flourishing, which means any part of creation that is going to be most fulfilled in itself has to be aligned with the one who created it. Any part of creation that wants to be most fulfilled in itself has to be aligned with the one who created it. In other words, if we want to experience true freedom and joy in this life, we align ourselves with God's design and purpose given in his word. If we, want to, if, if we want to understand what flourishing really looks like, we align ourselves with God's design and his purpose given through his word. And this is where I think the philosophers like Sartre and, and Nietzsche, where they get it wrong about the nature of freedom. Because the nature of freedom to them is if, if there is no existence of God, then everything is permitted. That's freedom. But Genesis 1 shows us a better way. That true freedom is living in God's design and purpose. That true flourishing happens not when we ignore our creator and the purpose in which he's established, but it's living in that. God's word from creation onward was not given to belittle or manipulate or restrict our freedom. God's word is given here as an expression of his beauty and his character for our flourishing for our freedom, for our good. That's why when you hold a grudge against someone, it eats you up inside. That's why when you hold a grudge against someone, right, you can't forgive them, you can't sleep at night, you get anxiety. Why? Because you were created to forgive and you're going against the creation. That's why if you're a workaholic and you work 90 hours a week and you've sold your cell to, the, to, to your job and all you care about is money and it affects your other relationships and it affects your health, it affects your sleep, it affects your anxiety levels. Why? Because you were created for a different rhythm. God has created the world with purpose and order and design for our good, for our flourishing. And he's created it for his glory. Now, understanding who behind the creation will help us then understand the second question, how do we then live in this world? God is the one who is created from his power, from his love. He's created with design, with goodness, with purpose. And how do we live in this world? Well, we should enjoy it. Look at verse 31. At the end of Genesis chapter 1, it says, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, and there was evening, and there was morning on the sixth day. We should enjoy it. Why? Because God says it's repeatedly good. God's creation is infused with his goodness. To enjoy it, though, means that we have to understand it rightly. To enjoy it means we have to remind ourselves that creation serves as the pointer, not the point. To enjoy it means that as beautiful as creation is, it's never meant to satisfy our human soul as we often expect it to. To enjoy it means that we have to understand that creation was never designed by God to be ultimate. When you look in Genesis chapter 1, there's 31 verses, and in those 31 verses, some 35 times God's name is mentioned. The heavens and the earth are mentioned a few times. 
Humanity is mentioned a few times, but overwhelming, the name that jumps off the pages of Genesis chapter 1 is who? God. I think there's intent behind that. The point is that everything in creation has its origin and has its destination in God. He's not just the alpha. He's not just the first letter of the alphabet. He's the omega. Not only our beginnings, but our endings find their meaning in him. He's the point of everything. And unless everything in creation, the things that our hearts so easily long towards and gravitate towards to find meaning and hope and purpose, unless everything in creation is orbiting around him, then what happens is chaos. Because creation was never meant to be the point, but the pointer to the one who we, to, we are to enjoy. Think of it this way. If you go to a dinner party, and they tell you that they're serving their main course is going to be uh, the, 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 the meal of your dreams. For me, it's just a steak. Like, at the end of the day, like, just give me a good steak, right? So, like, we go to the dinner party, they have a steak on the menu, and I'm just so happy. But it's an hour and a half before they serve that steak. But then they have these people bringing around these trays of these very tasty-looking appetizers, right? But I'm smart, right? I, I'm, I'm going to pace myself, because I know there's something great coming. And so I take one, but then I go outside because I need to avoid the temptation. Or I, or I go to the restroom, or I go talk to some people and strike up a conversation. And I go back and get another one, but I pace myself throughout. Why? Because I don't want to miss the joy of the feast. If I fill up on these appetizers, if I stuff my face with the appetizers, then when the real feast, when the real substance of things is put in front of me, I have no appetite left. I will miss the joy. I'll miss the whole point of the dinner party itself. And just like the human stomach is made for something much grander than appetizers, the human soul is made for something so much bigger, so much bigger than just a career. So much bigger than just an upgraded living situation. So much bigger than the man or the woman of your dreams. So much bigger than any of those things. When the good God of creation becomes central in our lives, then what that opens up is a capacity, a greater joy to actually enjoy creation to see it for what it is, a good thing. See, Christians of, of all people should be the most enjoyable and good-spirited people in this world because we know where creation comes from. We know where it comes from. We don't have to live like the secular philosophers who, who don't believe in the existence of God because if we live like that, we have to idolize creation because that's all there is. And we don't have to live like an anti-materialistic person and says that creation is demonized and bad either because we know that the goodness of God is imprinted on it all. We can rightly enjoy the beauty of a sunset or a delicious meal or a good evening with friends and call it good because it's reflecting the goodness and the glory of our creator. Not only do we live in this world enjoying it because it comes from the goodness of God, we shall also be frustrated with it we should be frustrated with it. In verse 2, as God is putting things into order, the, the, the earth is formless, it's empty, it's dark, darkness is hovering over the face of everything, and God starts to speak, and what happens out of that darkness, out of that chaos, is order. And it's very good. He creates, it's very good. He creates Adam and Eve, it's very good. But then Adam and Eve decide, as we'll learn later on in Genesis, they decide to live as if they're the masters of their own soul, if they're the Lord of their own life. And what happens is the garden isn't the garden, the earth is not the garden it was meant to be anymore. Things begin to fall apart. God takes chaos and he turns it into beauty and humanity takes beauty and he turns it back into chaos. 
and immediately we begin to feel the curse of the ground on the hearth. And Romans 8 gives us a, a, a present day understanding of this in Romans 8, 22. It says, for we know the whole earth has been groaning together in the pain of childbirth until now. It is self-evident the creation groans. Things break down around us. So how do we then respond to this reality? Do we just be optimistic about everything we see in this world? What wells up inside of us when we see children who are orphaned in this world? What wells up inside of us when we see things break apart around us, when we see brokenness, when we see someone experiencing illness, violence, neglect, rejection? You see, if we embrace the doctrine of creation, that God made everything good and he made everything beautiful, that he took chaos and made order and beauty out of it, then when we look out of the world, we see hurting and pain that results from sin. It should well up in us something deep, a groan with creation that this is not the way it should be. It should frustrate us because this is not what God intended for his creation. It doesn't mean that we become cynical. It means that we of all people should be the most understanding and proactive people in this world when we see brokenness and pain affected by sin. It, it means we should be the types of people who pray like Jesus taught us to pray, that kingdom come, that will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God, bring glimpses of the kingdom, the power of God down now. Bring order into chaos, heal what is broken in our societies and our culture, reverse the groan of creation. But you know what, when it frustrates us, we have to turn to our third question today. What is the hope for this world? When we're frustrated by it, when we realize this is not how it's meant to be, where do we find our hope? When you look back at Genesis 1, and you see that God creates out of this empty void, I find it odd at first when I read this, because I thought, well, God seems to have to first create a dark, empty void intentionally to then create something out of that. And I thought, well, what is, what, are we, what is he saying when the word brings order out of chaos? What is he trying to communicate to us? I think what he's showing us there is the same thing that's true in our lives. That because of sin, our lives are formless, void, and until God's word comes in, we don't have life. But when it comes in, it brings life, it brings peace, it brings beauty, it brings order into our chaos. But when the word departs from our lives, we fall back into that chaos. So where is our hope at the beginning of Genesis? Well, we have to read Genesis in light of the rest of Scripture. And we're reminded that God didn't leave us in the chaos. He didn't leave us to be overcome by this darkness, this void. John 1 again gives us some hope here. In verse 4, this word that was in the beginning, he says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus, the Word, re-entered a dark, sin-filled, chaotic world to bring life and light to us. When he comes in his earthly ministry, he comes to reverse that groan. He heals diseases. He walks on water. He overcomes the chaos in creation. He forgives the unforgivable. He raises the dead. But then something very strange happens at the end of his ministry. He is put in darkness and chaos. Matthew 27 reminds us of this. When Jesus was on the cross for three hours, darkness engulfs the land. 
And at the end of that, Jesus cries these famous words that we say time and time again here. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Darkness is now injected into the heart of the Son of God, the one, the only one who never departed from God's word in sin. The only one who never made any contribution to the decay of God's masterful creation. And yet, we see him willingly going to the cross, and literally beauty is unraveled. He's torn apart. But the irony is not just that his body is being torn apart on the cross. You realize when he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is the only time in the Gospels where Jesus refers to God by anything but Father. Why is that? Because in this moment, it's no longer the intimate address. It's distant. It's removed. Because of the forsakenness that Christ experienced on the cross, his willingness to be torn apart, we are able to be put back together. He was torn apart so that our lives and our world can be put back together. That is our hope. The only way for the universe and the world to be recreated is when the Son of God, the living Son of God, is uncreated and broken into pieces on the cross. The only way for us to experience hope in this life is for chaos and darkness to enter Jesus' world so that light and beauty and life can re-enter ours. Our only hope in this life is the Word became flesh and went to the cross for us. So as we come to our time of communion, Genesis chapter 1, the very first verses remind us that Jesus' willingness to be uncreated is the hope that we have for the world and for ourselves. Listen, when we know God's love from creation, and we receive that love, God looks at you and I in Christ and he says the very same words he said at the beginning, you are good. He looks at you and he sees goodness because of what Christ has done for you. And the Holy Spirit can then come into our lives and begin to recreate us and get rid of that darkness and say, let there be light here now. That is the hope we have in Christ. That we today can be reminded from the beginning of our story to the end is the unquenchable love of God. That from the beginning to the end, we can be reminded from Genesis chapter 1 that what's at the center of our purpose in life is living for His glory and sharing in His love for us. Sharing in the eternal love the Father has for the Son and sharing in the Son's love for the Father while the Holy Spirit pours that love into our hearts. Today, you can know your maker. You can know your creator. You can know his love for you, that there is hope in this world. And that hope will culminate one day through the resurrection that all things that have been torn apart and broken by sin will one day be made perfect again. Thank you for listening to this episode of King's Church DC podcast. If this sermon encouraged you, please like, rate, and subscribe to our podcast. For more information on our church and service times, please visit kingschurchdc.com. We hope you will join us again next week.